Okay, and welcome to another episode of Integrated Community Paramedicine Podcast. And it's been a couple months since we've gotten an episode out, but this week has been an event that hasn't been in the U.S. in a few years. And for those of us who've been around MIH for quite a while, uh, this is probably one of the first places we really went to or heard about thought leaders gathering to talk about mobile integrated health. And it's, uh, it's going on this week. I've got somebody with us today who has been down there, who's been involved in mobile integrated health for a while. And Charles, I'd like to turn it over to you. And thanks for hopping on with us this morning. Hey, good morning, Jonah and listeners. This is Charles Blankenship, and I currently am in a role as the Support Services Division Chief for Mobile Integrated Health at Novant Health New Hanover Mobile Integrated Health. We have our own community paramedic program there. Our manager, Sarah Rivenbark, uh, one of the original programs in the state. For 17 years, I was at Mission Health in Asheville, North Carolina. We started a mobile integrated health program there and actually came down and learned from uh, New Hanover and Sarah and the team here. So I've kind of come full circle. I got to learn from them. Now I get to work with them. Uh, so it's really been a, a great opportunity. We started our program with an ACO. So I have a little bit of varied background. And from that, I was actually involved in getting to know Gary Wingrove. That name should be synonymous with community paramedicine. And that's kind of what we're talking about, the older generation of MIH community paramedicine. Gary started this in Minnesota and uh, you have uh, Chris Montero that started it in Colorado, uh, some of the first ones to really kick it off out there. So they got involved and started listening to other international leaders and, and seeking out who was doing this kind of work at kind of a grassroots level in other countries and other places. And that kind of formed the International Roundtable on Community Paramedicine. Um, this is the actual 18th annual meeting of, of that IRCP here in Orlando. I actually was able, blessed to speak at the last one in Vegas, which was back, I think, in 2017. Next year, the RCP is going to be rotated to England. It rotates around Canada, England, other places, Australia, New Zealand. So it's been around a little bit and been around the world a little bit. So we basically, as the National EMS Management Association, of which I'm a board member and the secretary for, were approached to uh, run this program this year because it was supposed to be in Canada and to this uh, pandemic thing. Travel was a little bit rough there. So we picked uh, Florida because we thought, well, Florida didn't really close for anything. So they'll definitely be open for a conference. And we were right. And it is. And we've got a good crowd here, uh, a good list of speakers. And we've had some really interesting work brought up. Um, there's a lot of always... Yeah, you can do things different in Canada because you get paid differently. You can do things different in England because you, you have a different structure for pay for the medics and different structure of payment. And the same things the NIH trusts in Ireland and, and folks down in Australia. But what we also find when we get together like this is that we are doing a lot of the same things. We have a lot of the same issues, even though we have different models and different payment models and different education models. We actually have a, a lot of a likeness. And so Paramedics of paramedics of paramedic is something that has come up in, in every aspect of my career. I, I had the opportunity to work internationally for uh, over a decade and working with medics from around the world. It was absolutely clear that regardless of the, the path to credentialing and, you know, all those, those economic backers, you know, how the systems themselves are financed. At the end of the day, paramedics tend to be very, very similar, no matter where we come from. And and not only that, what what we find just in just the other night's conversation around the table, our patients tend to be very similar as well. Uh, we have patients who have really great needs, and we have patients who um, 
kind of use the 911 or 112 system for their own benefit. A uh, story was told of a place in Canada where there's a mall across the street from the hospital and amazingly, they get the same kind of action we get sometimes, they get called. And when they get to the hospital, a patient signs away from the ambulance and goes across to the mall. So you're right, it's, there's a lot of similarities in the work that we do and the patients that we have. And so it's been really, uh, really good knowledge base to uh, to share because it, everything that that has gone through this, most of it crosses pretty much all boundaries, uh, depending on where you're from, it, it's still the same thing. And one of the first ones that was a really eye-opener was a medical trauma by Lauren Young Work, uh, who's here in Lushy County, Florida. And basically, we talk a lot about trauma, and we talk about psychological trauma in EMS and, and in community paramedicine and mobile integrated health. We all know a little bit about that. But I don't think a lot of us have taken into account that she as a social worker knows that a lot of people get diagnosis trauma from getting a, a potentially life-threatening illness or a life-altering illness. People diagnosed with terminal illnesses or who have injuries that impact their lifestyle or their job or, or their health for long-term and people that may be in chronic pain and how you address that as part of your care plan and, and how you assess for that. So... It was very eye-opening in one of the one of the opening sessions. Um, we also had a session that was really good about the uh, community paramedicine impact on what I was surprised. The poorest urban county in the United States, according to Hannon Cohen, is the Bronx in New York. And they used their program there, although they did a lot of great stuff during COVID. Uh, they did the whole thing that a lot of programs did and made EMS on the front lines very visible to do vaccinations and infusions at home and treatments and testing, et cetera. They also uh, were very good to work on this program of inadvertent ED admissions uh, for the population there and actually were very successful and pretty much reduced those admissions by 25%. So some really striking um, information on that. Another good one that came up that, that applies to pretty much everybody out there, whether you're just starting your program or you've been in your program for a long time, Luis Mendiola presented on strategic partnerships and talked about not only partnering with the care provider for that individual patient, but the system of care, whether it be getting physical therapists that come into the homes, partnering with healthcare systems, even partnering with some of the systems that are out there now that are kind of for-profit, that are in this space, that are doing some home care things. Uh, and there's a lot of them out there that are doing work for insurance companies, whether they're doing health screenings in homes, whether they're doing blood work, uh, just checking some boxes for them on, on their needs. So it was really interesting to hear the different opportunities are out there if you reach out and talk to people. Um, and then when when you started off, Jonah, we talked about kind of the difference between those who've been around a while and those that are newer to the space. We did kind of digress into a, an age-old discussion of the professionalism of paramedicine. So how do you professionalize is the way it was put to us, paramedicine. And of course, you had two different concepts on that. We from from the States, Nick Nudell was presenting, and then from Australia, Dr. Peter O'Mara, uh, who's been around it a long time and, and they have a really unique system there. But it applies to us as well because community paramedics in, in different places have different level of degrees, which then give them different levels of provider status and different levels of pay. So it, it goes back to the heart of what we've done in, in EMS as well. And what do we need to do? What are the steps we need to take to really get that professionalization, that recognition as a, as a healthcare provider? 
Like you brought up in the beginning, Jonah, we have been on the front lines of COVID and we have made people see all the different things we can do. And during a crisis, they were happy to let us do these things. And, and in a few cases, they even paid us for some of it. But the opportunity is there to take that the next step and, and get a recognized provider status, uh, hopefully. One of the other projects that uh, everybody's starting to see a lot of now actually was talked about by Scott Willits is the home hospital models and hospital at home and how that model has actually been around for quite some time. But COVID kind of brought it to the forefront. And for most of the CP and MIH programs, I know they're, they're scrambling to get in line with this. Um, Atrium in North Carolina has a real successful program. I think they're seeing uh, a couple thousand patients uh, in their program. They really ramped up when COVID started. And there are other programs out there doing it. And, and Scott kind of gave us an overview of that and, and how to network those systems and, and tie things together with remote patient monitoring and other tools from from other different systems out there. So that was really, really invigorating to see that, you know, I've been involved and been around it and heard about the work that we're doing and Sarah and our team there at Nirvana working on, but I had no idea how long this had been out there and how many people have been working on this. So uh, it was quite eye-opening. Another unique program that we saw from called Be Brave Fall Recovery Class. Athena Valero Hirschfield said, you need to know where you are and be able to assess and recover, which was kind of a novel idea. We talk about people falling all the time and fall risk programs. And I know a lot of folks that do a, a fall risk assessment score when they go into folks' home, but how many of us have thought about how to actually get people to understand how to fall safely, how to assess yourself, how to use tools and, and other things to get up and get to help? things that you might need to have with you in case you do have a major fall. It was just uh, some, what most folks might think, very basic stuff, but it was very eye-opening. And they have a class uh, with their fire department that teaches that and goes out and works with that population. And one thing she did point out is that it's not always an elderly population. Uh, there's a lot of times that you have younger or folks with disabilities, uh, maybe folks on different medications that cause it, over-medication that causes it. So it, it was a, a real interesting, real interesting story. Big one that we came up with a couple of years ago. There is actually a, a federally sponsored program called Healthy Steps for Older Adults that um, provides a training for uh, various types of clinicians. We've sent all of our CPs through it that, that's similarly focused on that. And, um, you know, you and I both work for large health system based programs, which is a little different from, you know, some of the folks that work for you know, more of a municipal ambulance service based one. But that's that's something that's certainly uh, available to all of us and, and makes a huge impact. You know, I'm, I'm glad to hear it being talked about on such a large scale. Yeah, it was really, like I said, really eye opening uh, the work that they've done out there and, and how they have processed that. Uh, they were able to, to get some really good results. And it's out in, in Albuquerque and, and they're, you know, have a big retirement area. So you would think it would be mostly elderly patients, but it was interesting that a lot of the work is around, you know, some of the, the medical causes and, and also some younger folks due to different disabilities. So they kind of covered everything and it was, it's a lot broader spectrum than I actually expected. In fact, she even talked about some of the different, not true physical therapy, but kind of like exercises and stretches that, 
they teach uh, kind of around the, the feet and the awareness of where your feet are and having uh, some strength in your, your feet are a lot of the fall preventative factors, uh, not really what some folks used to think was core strength. So that was quite interesting. But I would say that the one that I never saw coming, we had a presentation on muscular dystrophy as a mobile integrated health system treatment modality. And it was quite outside the box thinking that got them there. Uh, Ruben Farnsworth out in California, uh, excuse me, Colorado. They actually had, it, it kind of came to them. He said he got this really weird phone call from this pharmaceutical company in Chicago and wanted to know if they could like give medication infusions and can you access support? He's like, yeah, we got paramedics. We do that. Yeah. What, what are you talking about? And they had a younger patient in the, in their area that had muscular dystrophy was on a, a trial medication that required a regular infusion. And at the time they were, parents were having to go long distances to get get this on a regular basis, I think once a week and split up the family and, and the impact was just quite heavy on the, on the patient and the family. And they were able to uh, work within the system and think outside the box and get the training necessary and the tools. And they started doing the infusions at home. And in the, in the interest of true paramedicine, they went above and beyond and, and got to a point where they did a train the trainer and then they were there on call for the mom when she did the infusions. And it changed the life of the family to be able to spend much more time together. And, and something that never have heard of that before. I don't know if you've ever heard of that being done from a mobile integrated health perspective, but it was a shocker to me. Yeah, I mean, there's a few programs out there that have uh, picked up infusion therapy of one form or another as part of their uh, kind of catalog of services. And, you know, it, it's no secret that I'm a little bit hesitant to uh, strongly endorse a lot of these uh, fee-for-service gut work type of interventions. It seems like if there was a business model for that, you know, we'd have done it already. You know, if there was a business model for a mobile phlebotomist, then somebody would be running mobile phlebotomy services. You don't need a paramedic for that. So I'm always looking for the, the bigger picture. You know, how does this really engage paramedicine and our education and our scope and the, um, the gaps that are, we're finding in our communities? But, you know, going back to the early days of community paramedicine here in the U.S., where it was really looked at as almost a rural health model um, you know, and, and a way to intervene in communities that were medical deserts, if you will, where there was a lack of physicians, a lack of available care. You know, we know there's programs out there Again, folks like out in Eagle County and, and you know, what the Monteros got started and has continued very successfully. You know, they're, they're doing both. They're doing the same type of MIH, like social determinants, gap and barrier centric work that a lot of us in more, uh, you know, urban areas or more resource dense areas are doing. But they also have a need to fill in some of the actual clinical provider gaps, you know, the clinician services that just don't exist otherwise. So when that makes sense, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I certainly think there are opportunities for paramedics to function within our scope, within our education, within the um, kind of the alignment with our profession. And again, that's a great example of it just wasn't available. And here is a clinician that is capable of doing so. And then the real question is, how do we get paid for it? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because he followed up uh, later yesterday and did a talk on sustainability and, and what codes they were using to get reimbursed for it. And, and that's an age old uh, discussion that's out there. And I do a lot of or did a lot of work around that when I was at Mission uh, with our team and with work with ACOs and MCOs. There's a lot of opportunity there in different insurance contracts. It's just like, you know, our community paramedic team is doing the monoclonal antibody infusions and, and, you know, 
billing for that. So there's different models of opportunity out there. And it's just a matter of, are you willing to step outside the box and go ask and, and go find the insurance person and start have that discussion and, you know, suffer through the thousand phone calls it gets to, to get to the person that can actually make a decision on that and, and will act on it. And as you know, working in a healthcare system, we're kind of advantaged because we have people that do that. We have people that literally full-time, all they do is negotiate insurance contracts and deal with those folks all the time. So when we can get to the table for us, it's pretty easy because we already have the the names of the people talking and those outside that scope have to uh, do a little more legwork to get to that point. But it it does create a good bit of, of opportunity along that line. We're vertically integrated, so we're actually owned by the largest payer in the region. So it you know, ah. I have that advantage. I, I can go right to the same people that I sit in meetings with all the time and say, hey, can we talk about a potential, you know, and and take it from there. You know, Doug Clark and I, uh, Dr. Doug Clark co-presented on that panel at MTLI a little earlier this year. Um, and he's a physician who actually did quite a bit of work for CMS um, around a lot of these different things. And that's where he became aware of community paramedicine. He and I have been chatting and I'm hopefully going to get him on next week, maybe. Um, to talk about some of the hospital at home funding mechanism potentials, because here's someone who's intimately aware of how that works from the government payer side and has become much more familiar with MIH and community paramedicine since taking on that role. Uh, he's now in a you know in private industry, and there are a ton of opportunities there. But I think some of that comes back to we have to learn what healthcare systems look like here. We've lived in that weird little public safety bubble with our you know our handful of codes. You know, ALS 1, ALS 2 really doesn't describe it. We need to start thinking about how do we granulate the work that we do and align it with type of payment relationships or revenue relationships that exist out there. Yeah, it creates, creates quite a bit of opportunity. That's kind of the, the thing that we look at. We've seen different opportunities come up and, and there's great physicians out there who, you know, they're they're doing the work and they're getting involved and, and they're starting to see the benefit of the mobile integrated health systems and and how they're working things. I think of our own uh, medical director that we had at the ACO when we first started our community care medic program there, Dr. Rob Fields, and he now has moved up and moved on. He's actually the chief population health officer there at Mount Sinai. And they were always looking at all the different barriers to care, the social determinants of health and and creating systems to prevent people from falling through the cracks. And, and as you get the physicians involved in this and they understand the, the capabilities of an MIH program, we get champions like that out there on the national level. And I think, you know, the physician you were discussing and, and Dr. Fields and others have, have started to become our champions on the front lines. And, and that gets us recognized as well and, and brings a lot of opportunity to us. And, you know, tying it into hospitals and healthcare and, and what impacts their system has, has a lot to do with it as well. In fact, uh, another program that presented here was a great program in Nova Scotia. It's interesting. I had heard another piece of their program presented uh, at Pinnacle this year in July. And then I had the opportunity to hear Karen Nichols and, and Francine Batts from Nova Scotia present here on the fragility of patients and how that has a lot of impact on whether the patient should even be admitted or not, because it can actually cause more, more harm than good. And, you know, it increases the length of stay if they are, then there's a, a huge risk of independence loss just by doing the wrong admission, really understanding how there are patients who don't need to get admitted for many reasons. Uh, we know that from our work, just even on the streets of 911 and EMS, but 
this is a whole nother perspective on, on certain fragility patients and, and have those different issues with their systems that can actually be a, a, a more at risk to, to be admitted for certain things. And uh, working, they worked with their advanced providers and primary providers there and were able to kind of talk them through and say, you know, we don't really need to admit this patient. They just need X, Y, Z. And hey, our mobile integrated health system can provide that for them in the home. So it was a great partnership uh, that they talked about there. Didn't uh, BU or um, Massachusetts, somebody in the Boston area just went all in on their like hospital at home thing. And I believe it involves community paramedics at every level and aspect of care for this huge, like they anticipate, you know, hundreds to potentially thousands of referrals like every week to that program out of their entire healthcare system. Yeah, I've seen that in the program that we were working with there at Novant Health and they, part of their model is to have on-call availability of EMS and community paramedics to uh, to do a lot of the services. So it is, if you hear of a hospital at home program in your area, regardless of who's running it, approach them because you may have the opportunity to be a partner in that system. And that's kind of a wrap from where we had the, the highlights the last two days, but we had something kind of unique happen here. As paramedics, we're always out, you know, we take a break, we walk around, we talk to people and uh, just always interact. And so it was kind of interesting Gary Wingrove himself on one of the breaks was walking around and literally in the conference room next door was a uh, conference going on, on on conflict resolution. And we all had kind of joked about that was like the perfect paramedic class because, you know, we need those folks to come teach, you know, that, that should be a part of the DOT curriculum. And um, as he was talking to, to one of the attendees, uh, he got to talk to this gentleman in Basu and found out that in his country of Mali, they had a real barrier to to healthcare there because they didn't even have an ambulance. Uh, that they were waiting long periods of time for people to be able to come with vehicles and and transport. And there was a lot of background information. He told the story of some of his family who had had suffered because of that. And so Gary, using his connections, actually was able to connect him up with James McCaughlin and out at UT Pass uh, Regional Health Services District, they had an ambulance and they were able to make a donation happen from them to Mali to present them with an ambulance uh, that's coming in the very near future. And it was really... Uh, that's amazing. It, it, it was, and it just really embodies what, what this line of work and the folks that do mobile integrated health and community paramedicine they're really out here to look at these social determinants health and understand barriers and sometimes simple things and, and we know from the industry transportation is a big one really kind of heart touched and in, in the way that he came back in and and he actually presented to the group and thanked them and educated us on uh, one of their words from his his home language in africa there's the word called mbuto and mbuto means humanity to others but the way he presents he says it also means I am what I am because of who we all are and the fact that we all are open and that we are outside the box thinkers and we have big hearts and, and we are both empathetic and sympathetic gave us the opportunity to to create this fill of this need that they had in this country far, far away from where we're holding a conference. And uh, it's just a wonderful thing to, to get that opportunity and, and have you know, be part of that and, and to hear, you know, his, his heartfelt thanks when, when the moment happened. So it was uh, just a really unique thing. And there's always something unique and interesting that happens at the International Roundtable of Community Paramedicine. And, you know, there's all the, the banner of the Queen's English and the not wearing ties and being relaxed. And we're here to educate and learn and, 
and interact. And it's not a talk to you conference. It's a talk with you conference. And a lot of the time is structured to, to be able to stay in the room and network with people there and learn from them and, and set up and exchange ideas. And we've even set up, uh, you know, here we set up a hospitality suite to get everybody together. We, we tried to organize some events, uh, even the, the meals to keep folks together uh, in the same area. And it's just part of the experience. And for those that can, I, I highly encourage you to travel next year to England. Uh, of course, there'll be some great sightseeing and touristy things to do over there. But along with the sightseeing, you get a chance to meet some great minds and uh, look at how some other things are done in other parts of the world. Yeah, no, that's that's really the point. In fact, the whole reason this podcast got started was because we had lost our access to you know, our ability to attend some of these conferences. And it wasn't so much just the speakers. The speakers are typically phenomenal, but it's not just that one-way transfer of information. I've learned more from being able to network with colleagues that are doing this work from all over the country and all over the world. And it's those informal conversations. It's those opportunities to sit down at, at a meal or, you know, for a, for a beverage after the, uh, after the day's formal activities are done and, you know, or just, you know, grab some coffee or tea in the morning and, and just chat about stuff on your way into sessions. That's been the opportunity to learn. That's been, you know, how we've been able to grow our program is, is being able to, again, build those relationships and just, hey, what's working? What's not? What are you dealing with today? What opportunities are you seeing? And, and that's just been huge. And there aren't a whole lot of those for MIH. You know, the, the IRCP is, is by far the oldest one. It's the one where I uh, was first exposed to the broader professional community. Um, EMS World has done a phenomenal job, I think, of offering us our own dedicated track throughout the week. And, you know, there's, there's going to be some great speakers there. Um, the new association, I believe, is, is hosting the, um, the pre-conference day again. Uh, I'll, I'll be attending. Yeah, they actually have some representatives here, the Mobile Integrated Healthcare Association. Um, they've got a conference as part of EMS World, and they'll also be uh, helping with our state conference in North Carolina in March in Charlotte. So, uh, Yep. Yeah, they're, they're a newer one on the block, but they, again, they're trying to network and learn. And, you know, your point, you know, I got a lot of my information from just a chance encounter with a gentleman you're very familiar with, Chris Swayze. And he was nice enough to, to take some time and have a lunch with me and uh, start a relationship that we later brought the team from there down to, to do some training on our, for our community paramedics and mobile integrated healthcare providers. And, um, it's, it's just been a great opportunity. And it's one of the things that we recognize as a board at NEMSMA, we are about leadership and management, but we also realize the potential for this conference and, and the need to get it here in the States and, and try to try to make it happen. We pulled this together very last minute when Canada finally figured out they could, weren't going to be able to do it due to the pandemic. And, you know, we put a lot into it to try to make it uh, successful. And, and although, you know, our main mission is, is really, certifying, credentialing, and validating uh, leaders and, and the pillars of leadership uh, has been kind of our, our foundation in working with folks. And, you know, we build a lot also on our network. And I mean, our, our NIMSMA Google group is probably one of the most popular EMS ones out there. There's a lot of great information that passes back and forth, like you're talking about that networking, asking questions, having quick conversations. And that's kind of really the value of, of the NIMSMA membership. But we recognize the value of this and very glad that we were able to bring it to the states. And, and again, I hope that everyone out there that couldn't make it gets a chance to uh, log on to Prodigy EMS, and you can get the recording of the entire event, just some CEUs out of it as well. 
So uh, for all those out there, you, you may have missed it, but you can still catch the great content that was here. That's right. I forgot Prodigy is uh, recording it and making it available for everybody. So that's, that is certainly something well worth doing. You know, Prodigy has done a bunch of great stuff to support, um, you know, MIH and, and, you know, paramedicine leadership and, you know, really just helping us, I think, get some really, really good information out to a lot of folks, but um, I'm really happy that they're making this available. That's huge. You know, also down there in North Carolina, you know, I would say right now my favorite MIH conference is is the one that Atrium's hosted, and they elected to delay this year, and uh, there's some opportunities. It may get a little bigger next year, I'm hoping, but, you know, getting to that Atrium conference, I haven't made to the New York City one yet, but the New York City conference is on my list for next year. Um, that's typically a one-day conference. The Atrium one has been a, been a couple of days. Those opportunities for those of you out there who are, you know, we know that the average MIH program is like less than three FTEs worth of people. And, and very often it's a couple of people working part-time in that and still trying to cover emergency shifts and some other things. For those of you who are leading MIH programs, take these opportunities, get out there and network with folks who are running these programs who maybe just have even a few more months experience than you, Never mind worrying about, you know, the folks who've been at this for a decade or longer Take your lessons learned. There are a lot of dead ends. There are a lot of things that are learned a little bit the hard way um, about things like how to, how to present to executives, how to talk to healthcare systems, things that we haven't traditionally done in pre-hospital care that we need to learn. And then place to get that information and to figure out how to navigate it successfully are from your peers and your colleagues. Yeah, and I do know that conference in North Carolina is going to be that second week of March, I think the 13th through 15th, somewhere in there. Uh, you can look it up on the Mobile Integrated Healthcare Association site. I think Atrium is going to put it up here shortly. I'm sure our manager, Sarah Rivenbark, usually speaks at that. She'll be there presenting and a great person to network with. But take those opportunities because, as, as you said, John, it's not just the successes, but a lot of times what I share with folks when, when they call me to consult and talk about this and say, what, 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 how you do this? I'm like, well, here's how not to do it because uh, we made a lot of mistakes along the way. And if nothing else, I can just save you some time and not making the same mistake that we did. That's it. I might not have the right answer for you yet, but I can tell you three wrong answers. Uh, good stuff, Charles. Well, I really appreciate you hopping on this morning. And uh, you guys got another day of content here, I think, today, correct? Um, does it continue tomorrow? Yep, we started at 8 o'clock and uh, we're rolling right now. Excellent. Well, I'll let you get back to it. Thank you so much for hopping on here and kind of sharing this. Folks, if you're doing MIH work, the International Roundtable is someplace you need to be paying attention to. A lot of folks have put collectively dozens, if not hundreds of years worth of work into trying to navigate all of this stuff to make it successful. Um, and they get together at a couple of different places. This is where you want to be. Uh, Prodigy has it online uh, recorded, so you'll be able to kind of listen to some of those sessions make the time to get to the conferences. They're worth your time. They're worth your investment. Build it into your budgets. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Jonah. And I'm going to get back in here and uh, get some more great content. Good deal. Thanks, Charles. And everybody that is integrated the Community Paramedicine Podcast. Mm -hmm.